Well, hello and welcome to episode 140 of Church in Maine. And uh, in this podcast, I will finally talk about something that I've been a bit hesitant to talk about over the last two years, and that is the issue of race. Welcome to episode 140 of Church in Maine. This is the podcast that is at the intersection of religion and modern life. My name is Dennis Sanders, and I am your host. As I said in the intro, this is an episode where I'm talking about something that I've been rather hesitant to talk about, which, and that is the issue of race, um, which is a little weird. Because, of course, if you have seen a picture of me or a video, you know that I am African-American. Um, and not that every African-American is obsessed on the issue of race. But I do believe that as African-Americans, in some ways, we can't escape that issue. It's always present in our society. Um, but I haven't really talked about that much over the last few years. Um, and in some ways, I haven't really talked about it as much, or at least I feel, well, hesitant talking about it as much in public. And it's because I think in our society, we've we've kind of lost how to talk about race. Um, and I think maybe the, the political climate has also made that much, much more difficult uh, than it used to be. Um, I think that as a society, and especially um, in the church, especially, I feel I'm sometimes trapped between two extremes. Um, and the one extreme um, that I think is very, especially very common in mainline uh, and progressive Christian circles uh, in the church is anti-racism. Um, and there are some good things about anti-racism, but um, as you'll hear in the interview, I've also had problems with it. I feel sometimes that it's not graceful, um, kind of set things up that one side is always the guilty party. The other side is never the guilty party. Um, we never really are able to come together basically kind of as equals, um, and there's always a sense of animosity. Um, and then I think also, you know, the the whole tenor of anti-racism tends to be very, I think, depressing. Um, there just doesn't seem to ever be any hope. Um, there's a strong belief that nothing has ever changed, and uh, especially in um, the last 60 years, um, as if there was no civil rights movement as if we never had the first black president that was elected twice. Um, we don't talk about that progress. And so um, it's just something that feels very 
uncomfortable because it feels like it's not really dealing with reality. Um, the other side of that is kind of what has been called colorblindness. And I think that that's a laudable goal. Um, and I think especially as we will hear in the interview, um, it was actually something kind of what people were looking for or towards, um, especially in the and in the immediate aftermath of the civil rights movement in the 60s and 70s, um, and I would say even into the 80s. But the problems with at least how it is um, cast today um, sometimes wants people to forget that race even exists. Um, and there are some who will say, you know, especially if you're African-American, that that doesn't really matter as much. What matters more are individual achievements. And there's a part of those things that I agree with. And in fact, I would say that some of my outlook leans that way, but it's also not realistic because it doesn't deal with some of the present problems that we're dealing with. Problems that are, that still stem from, I think, segregation. Um, and my belief that you just don't get rid of um, things like uh, racial laws and, and all of that, and then enter the promised land. There are always going to, it, it, there will be, it will be a while before we get to that total point of harmony. And so it's been a godsend to read um, someone like George Yancey, who is uh, today's guest. Um, he has written a book called uh, Beyond Racial Division um, that came out in 2022. It actually is the winner of the uh, Christianity Today's Public uh, and Public Life Book of the Year for 2022. I think it's a really great book because he is willing to look at um, the racial problems that we're dealing with. And in some ways, and also he proposes oh, something that is beyond um, colorblindness and anti-racism. Um, something that I think may be actually better suited for the church. And so that is what we're talking about this hour. Um, and uh, George Yancey is a uh, professor of sociology um, at Baylor University. Uh, he has written uh, Beyond Racial Division. Um, it also builds up uh, on a book that he wrote earlier called Beyond Racial Gridlock. Um, he is um, also someone that has done a lot of research, and we did not talk about this on this episode, but I would love to have him back to talk about um, kind of research on anti-Christian attitudes. Um and that has also been some of his work. Uh, but again, we don't talk about that here, but we do talk about um, what is kind of his model. What's wrong? What's kind of the limitations of both colorblindness and anti-racism and also his model um, that he brings up, which is um, mutual accountability. And we'll talk about that in this discussion it was a great uh, time to talk to him. I've been looking forward to to meeting him. Um, I've really enjoyed the book. And um, so without further ado, uh, let's talk to George Yancey.
Well, I want to thank you for uh, taking the time to uh, chat with me today about this important issue. My pleasure. My pleasure. So I think the first thing I wanted to start off with is um, in um, in your book, you kind of start about that you had gotten to a point where you felt like you were done um, mm-hmm. writing about race and found out you weren't and that there was a, you needed to really kind of get back into this issue. Can you kind of explain kind of what led you to that point where you felt like this was a discussion that you still needed to talk about? Yeah. So, you know, uh, of course a lot of this blew up in 2020 when we had Mm -hmm. all of the, uh, uprisings and such. And so, uh, you know, I'd still, it, it was sort of like with me and race. It was like every now and then someone calling want me to talk about race, although I was working on other things. And so I would do it because, hey, you know, I thought I had something to say, but I thought I said everything I needed to say. And, uh, but at, at 2020, there was some, something happened. Uh, I was, there's a lot of people who were contacting me and talking and, and some of the ideas that I said, well, I, I, I present these ideas like 15 years ago. No one wanted to me up on it, so you know I'm doing other things now, and that people were, were, were more serious about it, and so that got me thinking: Is God trying to bring me back into deal with the racial issues? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, so I, I realized that uh, that in some ways, yes, that maybe I was taking a break, maybe I need that break, uh, but uh, but He definitely wanted me back to deal with these racial issues, and, and now I, I, you know, I don't want to predict what's going to happen because I'm bad at predicting what's going to happen in my life. But uh, it seems to me that I'm, I'm probably going to be in this the rest of my life, mm. uh, you know, trying to because I, I don't think that uh, that what I would like to see happen is going to be accomplished in my lifetime. So, uh, you know, it was it was it was then, yeah, I'd be happy to drop it completely. But uh, but I think that I'm going to be here the rest of my life. I'm kind of curious. Do you think that especially during the. Um years that uh, Barack Obama was president, that that might have been an impetus of kind of where it felt like things were, I don't know, I don't want to say that they were perfect, but that the mm-hmm. maybe that the issues weren't as, didn't seem as salient, um, that they have been now in the last few years? You know, I think there are some good be some fantastic books about race in the Obama years. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I think there were already would be those books with the Trump years. You know, people were trying to write about that more than the Obama years. But the Obama years is actually more interesting. The Trump years is pretty straightforward. Yeah. In a way. You know, uh, but the Obama years, you had all right, so I'll be honest. I did not think I'd see a black president in my lifetime. I thought I'd see a woman president before a black president. So when Obama ran against mm-hmm. Clinton, I thought, well Clinton's gonna win. And there's a problem with the presidency because, you know, because I thought I see one president. So I think people uh, sometimes dismiss just how momentous that was. Uh, and then we've had it, you know, it's like, okay, yeah, we had black president, we want more. But that was huge. And that, you know, it was for Catholics, it was like Kennedy. Mm-hmm. You know, Kennedy showed Catholics, you could become president of the United States. Obama showed African Americans. You could become president of the United States. Now, it may be it's harder for you than whites, but it's not impossible. And you can never say it's impossible again because Obama was president. So that's huge. So there's that. And yet, if you think about it, uh, you know, uh, Marbury, 
uh, Trayvon, I'm not sorry, Trayvon, not Marbury, is it Trayvon Martin? I'm sorry, I forgot his exact, but Trayvon happened during mm-hmm. Obama. It did, yeah. So, so, uh, so on the one hand, you have this, you have this sea change, there's no doubt about it, but you have this undercurrent of, of tension that's there as well. So, I do wonder if, if somehow uh, Obama primed us for thinking things are better than they really were. That they improved, and I think that people who say, well, nothing improved to Obama. I think that those people are, you know, they're ideologues. You know, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. Things improved, but they didn't improve to the extent we thought. We thought, we get a black president, man, we've got it made. You know, we're, we're in. And yet, we weren't completely in. Things were better, but they weren't there. And I think that that created uh, certain tensions. Did it create a backlash against, you know, I think that's possible, but I don't have any data on that. And no one's really shown me any data su- suggesting that Obama being president created the backlash. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, maybe it created, I do think that it created disappointment among some people of color. They thought that more things would happen. Uh, not realizing he had to be president of the whole United States. He couldn't say, oh, hey, I'm president now. I'm president of the black people. And the rest of y'all go pound sand. Yeah, I mean, you know. You know, you, you don't. I mean, we want we wouldn't want a, a, another president not our race doing that. So, no. so yeah, uh, so yeah, I think the Obama years are interesting. I don't have, you know, like I said, I think there, I think there's some interesting books probably written ten years from now on what Obama did to race, and I don't think anyone completely knows about it yet. Knows yet? I, I don't. But I think there was some 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 counter tension, some countervailing pressures in both directions that created the situation that it was. Mm. Which in some ways leads to kind of the the two approaches to kind of race um, that you highlight in your book, um, colorblindness and anti-racism. Um, kind of before we kind of go in, dive in deep to that discussion, could you kind of uh, give a kind of brief de- uh, definition of those two approaches? Sure. So colorblindness is is real straightforward. I mean, it's the idea that we just ignore race, and that's how we're going to defeat racism. And so, if you you know, if you paying attention to race is the problem, uh, no matter who it is. So to be fair, the colorblindness says when whites pay attention to race about whiteness, that's a problem. When blacks about blackness, that's a problem. So in that sense, they're they're, they're sort of equal in that sort of way. Uh, anti-racism is a little bit more complicated, uh, you know, but one way to think about it is a very proactive approach towards dealing with the racial issues. And not just about individual racism, but about institutions and social structures. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I think it's more than just being proactive, but I think that's a, a good place to start on it. Because I think uh, it leads to certain types of methodologies, certain types of ideas that you don't have to have but uh, and, be, and still be proactive, but they develop nonetheless. And, and uh, I know this from having read the literature. At the time of the article of the book, I was reading mostly pop anti-racism literature. Mm-hmm. Uh, since then, I've gone back and looked at some of the academic anti-racism literature. And really, I don't know if there's a lot of difference. I'm trying, you know, I've been thinking about, you know, how does the pop anti-racism literature differ from the uh, from the uh, academic? I don't think there's a great deal of difference. But nonetheless, the, uh, other than the, I think the, the academic one is much more, uh, much more global. Uh, the, the, you know, they have this more of a global perspective. That's something I can think of so, thus far. But, anyways, uh, that's anti-racism and, that, and that's uh, colorblindness. And I, I think, in some ways, the Obama years kind of uh, because for our, 
from for the colorblind is Obama years said, look, see, a black man's president. And, you know, and when people voted for a black man, whether I did or not, people vote for a black man, it shows just how great we are as a country. We can we ignore race. And I think that's how they interpret Obama. Whereas the anti-racist, I think this may be part of what accrues attention, you know, just thinking out loud. This Obama's president asked, okay, what we want is not going to happen because of Obama. And when it didn't happen, it, I think, created frustration on, on their mm. part. So, uh, so I think that, you know, these two, two different ways of looking at race, uh, you know, was, you know, Obama, Obama being president did not uh, worry about racial harmony because they saw different things through Obama. Hmm. So, so, you know, you know one of the things okay. that I've noticed, especially in, in, in the church as a pastor, but in, in society as a whole, it, are how these two kind of approaches really have kind of have such a big role in our, in our culture. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the things I've dealt with a lot is, is dealing with the, the concept of anti-racism Um and it's an interesting way of looking at things. I think there is much to agree with, but it also seems like there is something that it falls short um, in that it, it seems like it's very good at addressing the problem, but it also seems to be not as good as finding solutions. And it's also not as good as bringing people together. It seems to want it, as if it feels like in some ways separation is a given that there won't be really any type of reconciliation. I I guess I'm wondering, do you see that in, in in the, the shortcomings of anti-racism or are there others that I'm have not, not brought up? Yeah. I I think your analysis is spot on uh, that, you know, uh, even though they're not the exact same thing, I say the same thing about critical race theory as well. That I mm-hmm. think I think it's excellent for now. Hey, here here is a problem. Uh, I think the solutions they offer fall 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 short. Uh, and I, I like you, you know. I tell people, look, you know, there are times where I'm colorblind. There's times where I'm anti-racist. You know, uh, when I'm grading my students' tests, I'm colorblind. You know, uh, race should not factor in into how I grade their test, and it, and it does as best as I, as best as I can. I. I but, uh, you know, when I discuss anti-racism in the book, I think there's three tenets I discuss, and two of them I actually 100% agree with. You know, that race is multifaceted. Uh, racism is multifaceted. You can't just take, take, you know, it's not just about a personal animosity. Mm-hmm. And then we have to be proactive. You know, I'm on board. If that was all anti-racism was, I'd be an anti-racist. But I also, I also found a third tenet, which I found again and again and again. And this is what I mean. You can be proactive and not have to use this third tenet, but they do. And, and I can't see it any way around this. It's just there. If you read the works and you're honest, you can't escape it. And that third tenet is the role of whites to do what people of color want them to do. And that ends conversations. That ends chances of coming together. It's not working with whites. It, it, whites. It's you're white. You're supposed to do what people color do, tell you to do, and uh, and I think that you know I, I can't get on board with that for you know I can't get on board with that for philosophical and theological reasons, mm-hmm. but also that the research shows that this type of approach simply does not work. So you know, even if I somehow could philosophically agree with it, when I look at the research and it shows it doesn't work, and can 
often make things worse, then you have to think, well, okay, there's got to be a better way because this mm-hmm. isn't working. Uh, and, and so, so you know, I'm, I'm you. I mean, there are times where anti-racists say stuff, and I go, yes, I resonate with that. I, I, I think that that's correct. And then other times they say stuff, and I cringe. So, uh, so I think that that's where I'm at. Mm-hmm. And you bring up something in in the book, and I also heard this in studies that um, kind of diversity trainings um, were basically are mandatory, are yeah. actually really don't work, um, and actually can make a situation worse um, yeah. than it does better, and and not really advancing kind of um, racial justice, um, which I think does is important because I think it's. It doesn't make it as a to me as a problem that we are coming together to try to solve. It's more, yeah. What are you going to do to try to solve this? Yeah, and, and you know, I think it'd be interesting. I mean, I know the research you're talking about. And I think it'd be interesting to follow up because I, I wonder what the difference is between mentor and voluntary diversity training. Because mm. if something's mandatory and you have to be there then the person presenting can really do almost anything they want. And you can't do anything. You can't leave. You, you can't vote with your feet. Yeah. Whereas voluntary diversity training, and you know people can leave or not have to come back. I think it's just a different approach. And, and it may be that part of the way may, voluntary diversity training may work better is because people who choose to go there are open to being changed. And so mm-hmm. that, you know, but it also may be that you get a better type of training when people know that you don't have to be there. Uh, and, and thus they're not free to say whatever they want to say, uh, or do whatever they want to do. They have to try to convince you. And and then when you try to convince people, if you're, if you're smart, you read about how to convince people. And the way you convince people is not the way we usually do with diversity training. It's, you know, it's through building rapport with people. It's through, uh, finding common ground. It's, you know, through, you know, this is how we, how we really convince people. And so if you're doing that, you're diversity training, you're probably going to be more successful regardless mm-hmm. of who shows up. But then you probably get people show up who also. So I just, I don't know your research on it. I think that'd be a fascinating study on, you know, how voluntary diversity training, how the training itself differs from mentor diversity training. Mm-hmm. Kind of one of the things beef that, that I have in our society is that we've seemed to lost the art of um, persuasion. And mm-hmm. I think that that's something that's incredibly important in this context as well is how do you get, persuade people to understand your viewpoint instead of just basically telling them this is what you have to believe, yeah. which somehow doesn't seem to, doesn't seem to work. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Um, looking at anti-racism, what do you think are the, are the benefits and the deficits of it from a theological standpoint? Okay. Uh, I think from a theological standpoint, uh, it's funny. I think the thing I'm gonna say about it theologically, the benefits is also its deficit, and and mm. uh, and I think that it's the whole human depravity thing. Uh, I think that it helps us to recognize human depravity among certain groups of people, and how they can create social systems that perpetuate their advantages and bake in human depravity into our society. I mm. think anti-racism uh, is by illustrating the, 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 the failings of our system and how, uh, and how certain, certain elements benefit from it, even if they don't, even if they're not trying to be racist. And, and so it's not about personal racism, but they benefit from it. So they want to defend it. Uh, you know, that too is a, is a depravity. Uh, 
mm-hmm. uh, trying to defend something that doesn't work. And, and I, I do think that there's some people who, uh, when you produce some evidence, hey, this is not working, that they try to shoot their eyes because they don't want to see that's not working because it's, it's, it's working for them. So I think the anti-racism is good for that. And it's, it's, it's deficiency is it does not take human poverty seriously enough when it comes to people of color. Mm. It assumes that, that people of color, because we've been victimized, that we have some sort of moral superiority and thus whites need to listen to us. And, and there's, you know, here, here's just one of many studies that show that this, that, that doesn't, that doesn't wash. Uh, kids, who grew up in houses where they're where they're abused by their parents grow up to then uh, are more likely to grow up. I'm not going to say grow, you know, all of them obviously, but are more likely to grow up and then abuse their parents. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they were abused and they were victims. They were kids. There's no doubt they were victims. When they become adults and their parents become feeble, you know, elderly, elderly abuse, they engage in that abuse. Now. The fact that they were abused earlier does not make it right that they abused their, their elders later on. We may understand it. We may say, okay, I, I see where you're coming from, but we can't say that that is right. Mm-hmm. So the fact that someone's been victimized doesn't make them morally superior. It makes them, they've been victimized. They, they need to be heard and they need to be ministered to and they need to be cared for. But they don't be, need to be made the sort of those final arbiter of, of all that's holy because. They have human depravity too, mm-hmm. and anti-racism, I fear, has forgotten that. Or since it's really not Christian based, never really understood that. Uh, a society where we transition from whites dominating everyone to blacks or Spanish or Native Americans dominating everyone is not an advancement. Uh, and so, uh, but that I think that is the vision. The underlying vision, even if it's not outright stated by anti-racists, that, that we transition to that type of society. And that will not bring us to any sort of utopia. Uh, so, so yeah, so ironically, I think that the thing that they good, are good about showing human depravity among whites, they're very lousy about showing human depravity among, among people of color. So let's look at the other um, side of this, and that is colorblindness. Yeah. And Colorblindness as a is one of the things that sounds great. I think it is something that mm-hmm. we want to aspire to at some point in some ways. But it also seems to be something that if you think about it more, it, it also has its its pluses and minuses. Yeah. Um, what are the pluses and minuses from your your standpoint? So you know, when it comes to colorblindness, uh, you know, first. You know, if we're really honest, the civil rights movement was kind of pushing colorblindness. So, you know, mm-hmm. some of my some of my white friends say, you know, Martin Luther King Jr., you know, he's pushing colorblindness. They're right and wrong. You know, because King King also talked about systems as well. But yeah, I mean that that was let's be honest, that was the appeal in the sixties and seventies. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, can can we just all get along? You know, and and maybe at some point of our history, after enough times passed. And maybe after we've had enough inter intermarriages and and we're all kind of beige, uh, maybe maybe we could just say, hey, you know what? Let's just be colorblind at this point forward. But the damage that's been done and continues to be done in our society will not go away by ignoring it. Uh, you know, if we look at the history of 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 housing segregation 
and uh, and the continuing damage that de- that segregation does, even though it's not official segregation today, mm-hmm. you know, when we look at studies that show that uh, people of color they apply for a job, they're less likely to get an interview back. All other things being equal, you know, if we look at driving while black, uh, if we look at the schools, you know, the black and Hispanic schools versus the white schools, uh, those problems don't go away by ignoring them. So you know, I. I have an appreciation of what people of colorblind want. And I'm not saying that their desires are evil or anything like that. Uh, I think many of them are good-hearted and they're trying to do the best thing. Do I think some of the people want to be colorblind because they want to ignore the problems? That's true too. But, you know, but I don't want to, I don't want everyone to meet someone and assume that, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I want to assume the best intentions that they have. But, you know, but those intentions come from a place of not knowing some of the systematic problems we have in our society. And until we acknowledge that and try to deal with that, then we can't just rely on colorblindness as a solution, just ignore everything. And that's not to say that there are, like I said, there are times where I'm colorblind. So, you know, it, it is a card that at times we probably should play. Mm-hmm. But I don't think the solution is going to be an overwhelming colorblind approach uh, because, you know, wounds don't heal if you ignore them. And an overwhelming colorblind approach is really a way, really at least ignoring the wounds. And we're not going to be able to do that. And how would you look at colorblindness, both its, its positives and negatives from a theological standpoint? Yeah. So theologically, I think, uh, I think the strength of colorblindness would be the notion of equality. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, if you, if you take if you take colorblindness at their word and, and give them the respect and, and don't strawman their uh, their their arguments, they talk about, "Hey, we're all equal, so why can't we treat each other as equally?" And and, and of course, it's, there's a, I mean, we are all image bearers, and none mm-hmm. of us are better than the others as image bearers, and and we we all love to each other as image bearers. You know, we treat people well. We should be treating people well because they're image bearers, and they don't have to, they don't do anything to, to earn that treatment. We do it because they're image bearers. There's an equality there, and I think the colorblindness tries tries to capture that, and I appreciate that. Uh, you know, I uh, I do think the weakness is I think this is scriptural that uh, that there are systems and institutions that the old prophets were calling out. Now they didn't recognize it the way that we do it today, so I, I appreciate that. But they were calling out, you know systems that were there that were oppressive to people. Mm-hmm. And and I think that, you know, colorblindness does not allow us to see those systems because it just concentrates on your intentions, your individual intentions. Do you intend on treating people differently by race? But you can be part of a system uh that uh that mistreats people people, uh a group of people, and uh and you should try to do what you can to to eradicate that system. And colorblindness kind of stops us from doing that. So, uh, so I think theologically, it falls short in that way. Mm. Yeah, I think one of the things that uh, over the years that I've tend to um, listen to different people, um, and I kind of have listened a lot and and appreciate a lot of the the work of people like John McWhorter or uh, Glenn Lowry um, and Coleman Hughes and some others, and I think that they have a lot of good to say. Um, that I would agree with. And at times, though, I also stop short um, because it feels like we're still not 
kind of dealing with some of the systemic issues that are are going on. Um, that it's not simply something that happened in the past and that everything is great now. Um, you know, I haven't gone to and and really have my problems sometimes with the anti-racist side in that it's kind of like everything is bad and that there's, you know, doesn't seem to always be an answer to this. But I still think that there are still issues, even though I think life for me um, as a black man is a lot better now than it was for my dad growing up in Louisiana in the 1950s. And I think I would agree. I think sometimes colorblindness doesn't really want to pick up or deal with those issues um, that are happening today. Yeah. Yeah. I I think, yeah. And that's why it's, that's why by itself it's going to fail. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I say that and people can have that perspective and they should bring that perspective into the discussions mm-hmm. by itself. It, you know, it eventually will fail uh, because of, of all, all that historically. And uh, I'm glad you, you know, you've mentioned uh, that, uh, you know, you've, you have better than your father did. And, mm-hmm. and so we, we have made progress. Uh, so uh, I think we have to acknowledge that. And sometimes I think the anti-racists don't acknowledge that, we, you know, we actually have made progress. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, life now is a whole lot better than yeah. it would, would have been 70 years ago for us. So, yes. and I think that has to be lifted up, even though there are still problems that remain. Yeah. One of the things I found interesting also in the book is that, um, and kind of lifting up with the anti-racist side, there's a lot of talk about, you know, the United States as a racist society. But you bring up the point of that, of the case of being a racialized society. What is the difference and what does it mean to be a racialized society? Okay, so when I start off with my talks, I talk about, you know, I have a slide where I talk about the United States as a racialized society where race matters within. I don't think anyone can argue with that. You know, mm-hmm. how do you yeah, argue that race no. doesn't matter today? I mean, maybe you could argue that 20 years ago, maybe you could argue during Obama's time, but how can you argue that it doesn't matter? And the reason why I wanted to start off with that way, whether, I mean, I understand the academic argument about why the United States is a racist society, okay? So I understand that argument. And I'm, I'm not totally disagreeing with that. I, I, I think, I, I don't think it's a wise way of approaching the discussion. Mm-hmm. All right, so so I will say that, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna make the argument that you know that that's completely wrong. But you know, I want to I want to have a discussion where people can enter into it, and 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 trying to uh, try make this is trying to define the United States as a racist society does not tend to do that. And since I know this, I'm not gonna lead off of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a racialized society, you know, I, I say okay, we're racialized. You know, our race matters. Why does it matter? And then I go into a couple of major points. It matters, first of all, because we've had a history of racial abuse. And no one disagrees with that. You know, no one disagrees we've had a history of racial abuse. Uh, and, but it also matters because today, we, you know, the worst thing you'd be called today is a racist. And no one really, that's legal. Uh, yeah. And no one disagrees with that. So what do we do with these two things? And it allows us to have a conversation, a much better, rich, richer conversation than I'm just up there as a six foot three black man saying, you know, uh, we got to end whiteness because this is a white supremacist racist society. And so, you know, we got to overhaul it. I mean, if I start off with that, the people who already agree with that will be cheering and everyone else will then at that point just shut up and, 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 the, and they're, and they're gone. 
and I have no way of reaching them. I have no way of talking mm-hmm. to them. I can bring all the, the, the great studies and, and show them, and, and it won't matter. But if we have conversations where we open people up first and find areas of agreement, which is one of the principles of club conversation, then we can build from that. But if we start off with something that we know that a good chunk of the people in the, in, in the audience are going to go, oh, you're wrong. I can't even listen to you because, you know, you're so wrong. Then, uh, then yeah, we can have that conversation. So that's why I, I prefer to uh, open up with, with that sort of approach rather than a racist society approach. And that kind of bringing people into the discussion brings up kind of your preferred approach, which is mutual accountability. Um, could you give a brief description of what that means or what does that look like? Sure. So, the, you know, a basic definition is, you know, I call it a collaborative conversation approach. Mm-hmm. And collaborative conversations is where people uh, work together uh, speaking, you know, have a goal-oriented conversation where they build on each other's ideas. So given that, then we need to create an atmosphere where people can actually do that, where we can go in, we can present our ideas, and we can build on those ideas, and 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 then find an idea that we can that we can best live with. Uh, and I think in doing that, what you do is you you find solutions where people have buy-in, rather than, you know, I said the problem with anti-racism is the role of whites is to do people what color what they do. Well, if you use that and you win political victories, and if people, that's sort of mentality passing rules, what's going to happen is that a lot of whites are going to go, well, you know, y'all didn't even ask us, and why am I going to help y'all? And I'm going to sabotage you. And, and that's exactly what happens. Mm. Uh, and the other way around, too, you know, when, when colorblindness win, and, you know, politically, and they say, okay, we're going to get rid of all these rules now. Well, people of color, people on the left go, wait a second, no, we had no say in this, and we don't like this, and so we're going to fight you every step of the way. Cloud conversation gives us the, the best chance of finding some sort of compromise where people can work together, people from all angles can work together rather than against each other. And, you know, and people will volitionally start working towards something that has a better chance of working. Uh, if if forty percent of your population is going to sabotage it, you're gonna, it has to be a fantastic plan for it to work. And most of our plans are not that fantastic. So uh, so I, I think that we want to move forward. This is the way to do it. And, and so less people think that it's just about talk. It's about action oriented talk, goal oriented mm-hmm. talk. You know, it's not about how good are the Chargers today or the Vikings or whatever. You know, it's it's it's. I think you're in Min. Are you in Minneapolis? I'm in Minneapolis. Yeah. How good the Vikings are. Uh, you know, so that's, that's, that's the point, you know, uh, we, we plan together first and then we work together, uh, but we gotta, we gotta talk, we gotta find ways of talking in ways that are productive and not destructive. And so destructive talk will actually make things worse. And productive talk is what we're looking at, what we're aiming for. How can the church be a place that kind of lifts up that model of, of really being mutually accountable? Um, and it, it does seem like that approach has something that I think the other two lack, and that is a sense of uh, grace that is there, um, as well as justice. Um, how do you see churches doing that? And do you actually see, are there churches kind of using that model to kind of bring people together um, to find solutions? 
Yeah, so I think we because this this solution is based on the notion of human depravity, and so uh, we should we should as Christians acknowledge that and be willing to work together. It doesn't mean that doesn't mm-hmm. mean that we're going to, but we should. Yeah, uh, I'm trying to work to, to try to encourage church to do that. In fact, I'm, I'm de- I've developed some materials that mm-hmm. uh, people can find. I, I'm beta testing it right now, which means it's going to be really cheap to do right now. But you just still have to put the work in if you're going to do it. We're setting up small groups where people are learning how to talk to each other, learn how to work out problems, uh, and move forward in that way. So, uh, so yeah, so I'm 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 working towards doing that to create that within churches, Christian schools, uh, Christian universities, hopefully. And then, as we figured out in, in the body of Christ, we'll be able to help people outside the body of Christ. Uh, mm-hmm. And in a post-Christian world, uh, we'll have a very very powerful witness in that you know. We have a way. We have an approach, which uh, which is going to be solid, which is going to uh, help to solve the problems, and something you're not seeing in the rest of the world. And I think that in a post Christian world, that's going to be incredibly important for us to to offer. What do you think is the challenge of kind of talking about and, and being honest about race within the church? I, um, know that you shared a story um, in the book of something that happened within the Southern Baptist Convention in 2019. Um, I think kind of coming up with a, I won't say affirming, but a, a, a more positive view on critical race theory of how it can be used, but yeah. that there was a lot of pushback about it. And, um, you know, I'm coming from the more uh, mainline Protestant world, but I know you're coming from the evangelical world of how does how is the church receiving that and and how do you deal with that pushback because there that pushback is there yeah so you know uh with my approach i get pushed back in the church from conservatives and pushed back in academia from from liberals so mm-hmm. so yeah so you know it, you know because i'm not taking a side and saying this side needs to win out i'm saying we need to discuss it and so so yeah so that's the pushback that that's Mother Southern Baptist uh some of it's based out of fear Fear of 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 things are going to change; they're not going to be the same. Uh, I think you know. Fortunately, we had a really great president, and I still think we have a pretty good president of the Baptists, mm-hmm. uh, who, n- you know, not none of the people, despite what people say, none of the people who are in charge of the Baptists are, are pushing in anti racism. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the ones in the charge. I mean, I'm not saying I'm, yeah. I can't. That's for all the churches. I'm sure there's some churches somewhere that's doing it. But the ones in charge are not. That they're not teaching that in the seminaries, other than that this idea. Uh, the, the people use critical race theory as, I think, a, a proxy of anti-racism. Mm-hmm. They're not. They're not pushing critical race theory in the Southern, in Southern Baptist seminaries. Uh, you know, I know a, a one or two of the professors there, and, and 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 yeah, you know, they do what what most of us do is, you know, here's some ideas for you to consider. Here's some ideas for you to think about. Here's some ideas to sort of, you know, enrich your 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 consideration. Uh, so, so I think that a lot of it is just to, to have fear. They, 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 uh, fear that what's happening out the rest of the side is going to come to the churches, uh, that, uh, that, uh, some of the ideals from, uh, from, uh, from anti-racism, uh, you know, that, that that's going to invade and, and take over and they don't want it. And so they just, like I said, they don't feel like they had a say in taking over the rest of the side. They're going to have their say right here and now. Uh, I think the Southern Baptists, 
because of the, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of younger churches, uh, you know, it's still a very conservative denomination. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I always laugh when people talk about the liberals and the Southern Baptists. I say, well, you know, the local liberals, Southern Baptists, conservatives everywhere else. <laughs> uh, the conservatives, Southern Baptists, fundamentalists everywhere else. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, you know, so uh, they're still they're still very conservative. But there, but but some, but a lot of the leaders have an awareness of wanting to deal with racial issues, and an honest awareness of wanting to deal with racial issues, and, and not just fall back and not just ignore it. Uh, and, and so, uh, so, and I think that I think that the ones who want to deal with racial issues have the upper hand right now, uh, and and maybe for the rest of the time, uh, because a lot of the younger people who are still very conservative, I mean, people think young people as being wild and liberal. The Southern Baptists are not. <laughs> you know, uh, that, that's in other places. They're not in the Southern Baptists. But but they 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 care about racial issues though. Yeah. The young people care about racial issues and they care about doing it right. Uh and and so uh so I, I think that the, the Southern Baptists is heading in that direction, but it's gonna there's gonna be some some massive growing pains as some of the people who feel displaced are going to, you know muck up things and, and cause a certain amount of trouble and, and, and you know that that is what they're going to do uh but i think that's how you have to just look at that situation uh you know the mainline churches are are splitting over the sexuality issues mm-hmm. and uh i could see how some denominations in in the, in the searchers could split over racial issues uh mm-hmm. they, they won't over sexuality issues, but they could over the racial issues uh so because there is a disagreement on and you know the colorblindness versus people who I won't say that they're that they're where I am, but that and they're not anti-racist. They they don't know what they want, but they don't they don't want to do, do colorblindness. That they know mm. they that they want something that's going to be more meaningful than that. So, kind of looking into the the future, you know, one of the things that, especially in the aftermath of um, what happened in twenty twenty with uh, around the the murder of George Floyd. Um, in some ways, you saw really a lot of of, of animosity that came as a result, um, and it just seems like there's been little or or less of a space for people to kind of come together and talk. Yeah. And what are do you see the prospects, or are, is there? I guess is there a hope that we can kind of come together and really kind of have this type of mutual accountability to to talk with each other um, instead of at one another, or even just to ignore the issue entirely. Yeah, so this is why I say it's probably going to happen in my lifetime. I I, I, th- I think we can. I think we I think we definitely can move closer to doing that. I uh, you know I, I'm not so pessimistic pessimistic thinking that well there's no way we're going to do, it. but it's going to take a while and it's going to take some effort. Uh, I think that there is a good chunk of the country, maybe a majority of the country, that doesn't know how to articulate it, but they realize anti-racism doesn't work, but they realize that we can't ignore race either. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think they can, they can articulate what we need to do, but I think there's a good chunk of the country that's dissatisfied with both approaches, deeply dissatisfied with both approaches. So if if more and more of those folks you know, find a vision for more of a mutual accountability or collective conversations approach. And, and if we can start reaching them and that becomes more and more commonplace, then it'll be harder and harder for the hardliners to say, Hey, it's my way, the highway. Mm-hmm. I think that's what we got to get to in this country. Uh, unfortunately, from my point of view, 
the hardliners have the resources right now to to push their message. Mm. But uh, but I'm hopeful that in time that can change. That that at least we can get somewhat on par with them resource wise, or at least close enough that that we can start pushing the message of a better way, a better approach. Uh, so I, that's where my optimism is. Uh, you know, I, I, I think I'm realist when I think that it's not going to happen in my lifetime, but I have three young boys, I, you know, it can happen in their lifetime. It's, and for me, it's worth working uh, if it allows it to happen in their lifetime. So, uh, so, so yeah, that, that's kind of where I'm at. Uh, I'm cautiously optimistic, but trust me, there's many days where I'm, where I'm very down, where, where I see what's happening. I go, oh, will we ever get, will we ever make any headway? But uh, but I think it's gonna be very slow, at least at first, because the voices that aren't the extremes uh, don't get a lot, a lot of play. One thing that I wonder, and and if this is related to the mutual accountability approach, is the role of story um, in all of this. And one of the things I remember um, in 2016, um, the floor of the Senate was. Um, um, Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina, um, he related a, a story of being stopped um, by, it might have been Capitol Hill police more than once, um, even though he had, you know, the, the Senate pin that specified who he was, um, that he had been stopped more than once. And it was that kind of a telling of a story. And I don't know what the effect was. But it, it seemed to be something that for me was mem- memorable. And I wonder, what is the role of storytelling of of, of people? I, I think on both sides that can tell their their experiences, their stories um, for people to hear one another. Yeah, I think it's good because one of the things I talked about when I talk about how do you have conversations with each other is to use illustrations. Because I find as a social scientist, asking for illustrations and giving illustrations is a good way of communicating with people. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the illustrations say things that's hard for us to articulate, and they and they show examples of how we're thinking about something. And, and it's really key, you know, if I'm going to enter this conversation with you, we're going to try to work together to find solutions. That I truly understand where you're coming from, and, and I don't have a caricature of it. You no, know, I don't have a distortion of it. Uh, that that's self-serving. So I think stories, illustrations, uh, that is one of the tools people can use in order to have better conversations. Okay. Well, if people want to know more about um, your models or what you're thinking, um, where can they go to on the internet to find find that information from you? Well, I think the simplest thing is just go to my website, which is georgiancy, Y-N-C-E-Y, not not C-Y, C-E-Y, uh, dot com. Uh, you know, that's the easiest way. Uh, I work at Baylor, uh, Department of Sociology, so people want to look me up there. Uh, you know, so those those are a couple of ways people can look look me up. Uh, my latest book is Beyond Racial Division, so if you just want to, don't want to mess with me, just want to go to my readings, you can just get a copy of that. Uh, so, uh, you know, I'm pretty easy to find. <laughs> okay. Well, George Yancey, thank you for taking the time to chat. I think this was a hopeful conversation. Um, and as you said, I think we still have work to do, but I think that mm. it's a good word to hear um, that it's not a hopeless fight. God bless. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. 
hope that that was a helpful uh, interview, uh, regardless of whether you're African-American or white or something else totally different um, or someone else from another background. I hope that this is helpful as we, as a nation, try to um, find a way of, of bridging the divides that are found in our society. Um, I will put links to um, uh, Professor Yancey's uh, website, the book, um, in the show notes. So please do look at them. Um, I do want to live, uh, leave with a, a, sh- a quick thought. Um, as a kid, I remember, actually, probably when I was a little bit older, um, my dad, uh, um, who passed away back in 2015, used to tell me he grew up in Jim Crow, Louisiana, um, and then moved to Michigan when he was in his 20s. And um, he would tell me the kind of the story, some stories about what life was like, um, kind of the racism that he had to deal with. Um, and he would always, when he moved to Michigan, um, you know, he would every so often go and visit his um, relatives, especially his mom back in Louisiana. Um, so he would drive. And um, on the way down, his uh, sister, who also lived in Michigan, would make fried chicken, things like that for him. And he would just basically drive and he would have the chicken. Um, and the interesting thing was, is that she made that chicken because he couldn't stop at a restaurant. Um, and he also couldn't stop at a hotel. He would maybe drive as long as he could until he got tired and pull over on the side of the road until a cop told him to move along. Um, and so he would go down to Louisiana and, um, then on the way on the return uh, trip, his mom, uh, would make some chicken for the same reason as he drove all the way back uh, from Louisiana back to Michigan. As I got older, as, as I was older and, you know, as we grow, grew older in the seventies and eighties. Um, and I remember actually mom telling me a story just actually shortly after he died. And I had not really figured understood this story. Um, we had went down South um, I, at that time, maybe I was three or four. Um, and, um, this was the early seventies. So I would say 1973, 1974, um, had driven. We stopped in, uh, Vicksburg, Mississippi at a holiday inn for breakfast. And so we stopped there and mom was ready to go in. Dad did not want to go in and she didn't understand that. And, um, he, obviously had remembered, had the memory of what it was like, um, as a, the young man. And, um, even though this was the early seventies, this was after civil rights laws had been passed, he didn't want to go in and he didn't. Um, my mom and I went in, um, obviously I guess the, uh, the, um, the wait staff there found me adorable. Um, so, you know, maybe that was striking a blow for, for racial reconciliation there. But, you know, we had, you know, I, I think I remember having pancakes, but that memory of, even though things had changed, um, and that was really over the span of 15 years, that memory was still ingrained in him. And, um, 
you know, it took some time, I think he, but that's still there. And, um, things have changed in America. Um, the life that I live as an African-American now is far different from what my dad did. Um, but that doesn't mean that everything is over. Um, there was still, if you factor in slavery and Jim Crow, centuries of laws and things that kind of, I think, kept African-Americans down. And while we, I think we have made advances at light speed here in America, and we should never ignore that, and we must remember that and give thanks for all the people who worked so hard um, to, to do that, we also need to be mindful that we still have work to do. There are still disparities. There are still problems with racism. And I think what I appreciate from, um, from George Yancey is that it is not a pessimistic um, outlook that I think anti-racism sometimes lifts up or an incredibly Pollyannish view that colorblindness um, sometimes lifts up. It's a realistic view. And it's a view of a world where people aren't perfect, where we're sinful, but where we can support each other and hopefully lift up each other. And with God's help to become a society where we truly can be judged by the content of our character and not by the color of our skin. So with that, uh, just a, re a quick reminder, um, you can uh, consider subscribing either on the platform that you're listening to or at our Substack, which is churchinmaine.substack.com. Um, and you can also um, support the podcast um, by um, either at five bucks a month or $60 a year. There is a uh, link in the show notes. So that's it for this episode. It's episode 140 of Church in Maine. The podcast it is at the intersection of faith and modern life. My name is Dennis Sanders. I've been your host. Take care, Godspeed, and I will see you again very, very soon. <music>